Chris Jenkins disappeared outside of the Lone Tree Bar and Grill. Brandon Swanson disappeared along Highway 68, which also has a Lone Tree Street along it, and he disappeared not far from there. Is someone playing games? 21 days before Zachary Marr disappeared in Boston, on the night of the 13th of February 2016, the body of Matthew Genovese was found floating in the Hudson River, the same river that Zachary was also found in. Matthew, 24, was out with friends from work in Hoboken, New Jersey. Matthew had last been seen by his friends that night inside the pub. He left the pub at around 10.30pm. His friends stated that he was not intoxicated. It was a Saturday night, January 23rd, 2016. Matthew left to go home, a walk he knew very well, and one that should have taken him ten minutes. The following Monday, when he didn't arrive at work, his work called his family to see why he was absent. It was his family who then reported him missing, being unable to get hold of him, and having determined that no one had seen or heard of him since Saturday night. When he left the pub, it had been snowing heavily, but his walk was not too far. His friends, who had been at the bar with him, said they did not think he was drunk when he left. The next day, on Tuesday, a detective searching by the pier and river found his wallet with his credit cards and cash still inside, as well as his keys, beside Pier A in Hoboken. If his money was all still lying there, then that would surely seem to suggest that he was not the victim of a robbery. But why would he have gone down to the river at all, particularly in such bad weather, when it was snowing and freezing cold? He was not wearing a thick warm coat, and surely anyone would have chosen to go straight home rather than head to the water? It seemed that he must have headed east after leaving the pub, rather than west, the direction in which his apartment lay. With his wallet being found at the site in which he was thought to have gone into the water, it was almost as though someone had left it there on purpose, wanting it to be found. It doesn't seem reasonable to suggest that Matthew would have taken his wallet and keys out, placed them on the ground, then jumped into the water. It was a freezing cold night. It didn't make any sense. It also didn't make any sense that he got hopelessly lost, totally disoriented, in an area he knew very well and that he walked in a completely different direction to that of his apartment, and didn't stop walking until he reached water and then jumped in. When his body was recovered from the water, the police said there was no obvious trauma on his body. Neo Babson Maximus, a different boy, was a world-class player of the first-person shooting computer game called Half-Life. Neo Babson Maximus left a cryptic message for his sister when he told her while fleeing through the woods just before he disappeared, look under the periodic table. It's a highly strange case and it started when a terrified and barely coherent call came from Charles Allen Jr. as he ran for his life through the woods. Charles had only recently officially changed his name to Neo Babson Maximus. He'd formerly been one of the top gamers in the world and he'd changed his name in part to reflect his infamous online persona. The game he was reported as playing the most was called Half-Life. Neo was a University of Massachusetts Dartmouth senior, four hours away from Boston, and he was studying psychology. It was October 11th, 2007, when his sister called him to ask him why he'd deleted his Facebook profile. He replied that he hadn't, and then began to become very frightened and frantic. He told his sister that people were after him and he wasn't safe. His sister has said that he sounded confused, that he wasn't making any sense to her. He told her to go home to their parents because she too was not safe now. Only their father could protect her. People were after him. Then he ended the call abruptly. 
That was the last time she spoke to him. He called his parents and left what his father says were strange messages on their voicemails. He sounded like he was running at the time, and it would later transpire that he was running in the woods. Then his phone was turned off. According to his friends at university, he'd been having a normal day at college before he made those calls. None of them knew that Charlie had to take medication for bipolar disorder, although he had decided to stop taking his medication a while ago, believing he no longer needed it. Despite this, however, his behaviour was still totally normal, according to all his friends at college and his parents. So much so that his friends were completely shocked when they learned that he had a condition at all. His parents said that from their interaction with him recently, they did not spot any sign that his behaviour was in any way about to spiral out of control. They said he had also never suffered any kind of breakdown in the past. Did he have a psychotic breakdown now? That's what most people would probably think when looking at the case, while others might say that it would be a very strong coincidence that he happened to believe his life was in danger, people were after him, and then he disappeared because he just happened to be in the wrong place in the woods at the wrong time. Surely the chances of that are pretty minimal. According to his friends, he'd spent the day at college and played tennis with a friend, a game at which he was said to be taking very seriously, with the intention of hopefully becoming professional. He'd arranged to meet a friend later that evening in the college car park to go to a party. He never showed up. The next night, he broke into a woman's home and entered the bedroom, believing it was the home of his friend Mason. When the woman whose home he was in woke up, he apologised politely and then jumped out of the second floor window to the ground and ran off into the woods. Well, interestingly, this case is reminiscent of that of Mike Knoll, who also wandered disoriented into a woman's home in November 2002 in another part of the country entirely, after disappearing from outside of a bar. Four months later, his body was found positioned half in and half out of a lake that had been searched and dragged multiple times. Neo's sneakers and backpack were found in the woods. He's still missing. When the police investigated his computer, they found that everything had been cleaned out. His family never believed for one moment that he himself would voluntarily delete everything, including his emails, from his computer. Dennis Nivoj was found in the Charles River in Boston on New Year's Eve 2015. The coroner stated that it could not be determined if he died in the water or was placed in the water after he died. The day that Dennis was found, a two-hour drive away by Route I-95, James Dyer went missing while out celebrating New Year's Eve in Portland, Maine. On November the 12th, 2015, Josu Cazette Elmendro was found in the river at Susquitch Beach in Plymouth. He'd vanished after dropping off his brother at a local store in Malden, New York, on October the 17th. His car was found shortly after he went missing. How he got to Plymouth is unknown, as is how he ended up dead in the river. The same day that Josie was found in the river, Jake Norn, a student at Plymouth State University, approximately two and a half hours away by Route I-93, also disappeared. On Christmas Day 2015, Anthony Urena washed up in the river off Hoboken. He disappeared on November the 14th the same day that Anthony Urena was found, and approximately two and a half hours away by route I-95. Anthony LeBounty went missing in Albany, New York. He was found on March the 9th in the same river. A young man goes missing, later to be found dead in the water. When he's found dead in the water, another young man disappears on the same day, but at a distance of one to two hours' drive away, in another police jurisdiction. 
in a slight variation. After James Dyer was found in the Portland Harbour six days later, David Brewing also disappeared. Also in Maine, but Dyer was in the Sacco Police District and Brewing was in the Orono District, two hours away on the I-95. Is someone driving around abducting the same victim type, young college-age men, making sure that they are in different police districts each time, far enough away to throw off any police connecting what's going on? Joey Laboot went missing on March the 4th, 2016, in Columbus, Ohio, in a case that bears similarity to the unsolved case of Brian Schaefer, who vanished in the same place ten years earlier. Anthony LeBounty had already been dead in the water by then in the Hudson River. Austin Hudson Lepore went missing on June the 12th, 2013. He was found dead in the water on June the 19th, 2013. Is someone playing a game with names here? Leboot Lebounty Lepore. The same could be said for dates, particularly dates with an occult significance. Well, when I was writing this book a few years ago, it would perhaps appear that there is a cluster of related cases in the New York and New Jersey area down to Boston, Maine and Plymouth. While this may sound quite disparate, they are all connected by the same main route, and all one to two and a half hours drive from each other. By applying the same MO, it can be recognised that this is not confined to a small geographical cluster connected by a highway. But that pattern that I had identified there is really unarguable, surely. Also, this new cluster identified is, is not a new cluster, really, because the New York and New Jersey were where perhaps this all started, and yet, at the same time, it was also happening in Wisconsin. Some of the killings may be the work of a lone serial killer, and that's certainly true. Some of them will be accidents unrelated, for sure. But maybe the police aren't looking into it because they're separate jurisdictions where the bodies are showing up in water. Different counties, different cities, but the same M.O., Back in 2007, it was a Friday night when 25-year-old Matt LaCrosse joined his friends at Carolina's Sports Bar in Bangor, Maine. As the evening progressed inside the bar, they split up when several of his friends left and Matt was last seen in the company of a couple who were estimated to be in their 30s. They were buying him drinks. Everyone who knew him said he was a happy and friendly guy, so maybe there's nothing suspicious about a couple in their 30s buying him drinks. On the other hand, this would be the last few hours of his life. He obviously enjoyed his evening there, and some will say he got drunk because it seems he was escorted out of the bar later on. That was to be the last time he was seen alive. He wasn't found until March the 8th, the following year, when his body was pulled out of the Penesbok River. In Matt Lacrosse's case, perhaps the couple who had been buying him drinks left the bar shortly after he was kicked out and offered him a ride home. It's highly likely that if he'd been comfortable enough to accept drinks from them, then we would assume he'd also probably have gotten into a car with them, with no hesitation or suspicion. Especially as it wasn't a car with a couple of guys, a woman wouldn't have been seen as a threat, and they'd been so friendly earlier in the bar that his car would have been down. After Matt disappeared, a search dog was brought in to try to find him. No one could understand how he just simply vanished. He lived in rented rooms with other people, and none seemed to have had a bad word to say about him. All his friends described him as happy-go-lucky and always smiling. He worked at the local Home Depot, so a lot of local people knew him. He'd never disappeared before. He never missed a shift at work or missed parties or nights out with friends. He didn't ever vanish. just wasn't in his character. His friends and family were concerned and anxious, and they were also quite shocked when they heard that on the last night he'd been seen, he was thrown out of the bar his friends had left him in. That didn't sound like him, they said. He never got rowdy or caused any trouble, and yet the bounce confirmed he'd had to escort him out of there just after midnight. 
Strangely, according to the blog Footsteps at the River's Edge, witness statements from that night were very conflicting. Some of the people who were there that night stated that he wasn't drunk at all, while rather alarmingly others said he was actually too drunk to stand up or walk. Sound familiar? It wasn't until he failed to show up at work the next day that people realised he'd never made it home. It was his employers who reported him missing. Two days later, the river was searched by police divers. His bank card and phone had not been used since Friday night. Although the police urgently wanted to talk to the couple seen buying him drinks, strangely, they couldn't be traced. The police took Matt's laptop away to look for any clues to his disappearance, but they came up empty. They believed that it was possible that when he'd left the bar to go home, he might have taken a shortcut through the park, the bar being about half a mile walk from his accommodation. The tracker dog picked up his scent and traced it from the bar to the bridge on State Street, where the scent abruptly stopped halfway across, next to the railing that lined the bridge. The conclusion the police made was that he had to have gone over the railing and into the water below. The question is why? The police dive team searched the river again and a boat with sonar equipment was used, but they didn't find him in the water below. Detective Paul Kennison of the Bangor Police said the dog went as far as to go up on the railing, but he added that there was no way to determine whether he'd stumbled over the railing, was pushed or went of his own choice. In fact, it also couldn't be determined whether the young man had gone into the river. He said we're at a dead end right now. Two months later, his body was found washed up on the riverbank in Waldo County, 25 miles away. His ID was still on him. The questions then are, did he get up onto the railing and jump, despite not previously having indicated any kind of personal problems or depression? If he had gone into the water at that spot, why would his body have drifted 25 miles? Or did something else happen on that bridge after his night in the bar with two strangers? Was his death a sick tribute to the seven or eight other men who'd been found dead in the river in the area which shared his name? Matt Lacrosse, and Lacrosse, Wisconsin. On October the 10th, Grant Gishelhart was found dead. That same day, Nathan Williams, whose nickname was Fish, was scheduled to return from his fishing trip in the same area. Later, he too is found dead. Jake Norn was a well-liked 23-year-old student at Plymouth State University. He loved poetry and music. He had lots of friends. He disappeared on Thursday the 12th November, and was five days later found in the river. When he went missing, his friends thought perhaps he could be hiding out in the woods, and they took his favourite books into the woods with notes written inside them, placed around the areas he most liked to walk, hoping he would be drawn to them. The search began for Jake only a few hours after he failed to show up to meet his family at a restaurant in town. He told his mum that from 2 to 3.15 he was going to class, then he would meet them at the restaurant at 4pm. The police were reported to have begun searching for him as soon as his family reported his absence because according to his mum, the previous weekend he'd been hospitalised briefly due to a mental health issue. Every day that he was missing, hundreds of people went out searching the woods for him. It was to be five days until a group out walking saw his body in the river. His autopsy determined that he had drowned, although, crucially, the coroner said the exact manner of death will remain undetermined. Jake Norn took writing classes with lecturer Ethan Paquain, who said of the student, He was well read for his age. Some of his poetry was dark, but also playful. It was E.E. E. Cumming-esque. He had a willingness to experiment and take risks. He waxed philosophically. He was a thoughtful, gentle soul. Interestingly, one of E.E. E. Cumming's poems is called I Will Wade Out. I will wade out, alive with closed eyes, to dash against darkness. I will rise after a thousand years. Well, it's easy to get carried away, to see patterns and clues and connections and possible answers. 
Some clues in these drowning cases have been found by trying to link it to the Son of Sam murders, to the Zodiac Killer, to the Mansons, the Masons, so it is possible to go down and down rabbit holes, really leading to, to nowhere that's relevant. But inside some of these rabbit holes are going to be some of the answers. Ewan's case took me to a Japanese forum. This led to an online game and sports discussion board where one of the messages, which looked like it was spam, and perhaps it just was that, had links at the end of the message. I clicked on that and it took me to a Japanese forum. What this link said was something utterly chilling. He has video cameras, it said. They need to have a scenario and comes to an end once you've got a trip originating from a friend near to the college. You could say, well, that's just spam. But you could also say, were there very relevant messages to somebody who was organising something like this? Like a sick game? Like cells being sent out to complete their mission? And it ends when they've met up with their contact and are on their way out of town after the act is completed, after another victim is dead in the water. Years ago, Senator Sensen Brenner of Wisconsin and US Congressman McNulty of New York had submitted requests to the FBI calling on them to investigate the mounting number of similar cases of drowning deaths, but they didn't get anywhere. In 1997, Charles Blatz, a student of Wisconsin Plattsville campus, had gone to the yearly Oktoberfest. Charles Blatz had only recently left the military with an honourable discharge. He was an older student at the age of 28. It was September the 27th and he was in a bar called Sneakers. The bar was a popular one downtown and a short time after midnight he left. Five days later his body was pulled out of the Mississippi River. One of his sneakers were no longer on his feet. 48 hours later Anthony Skifton, aged 19, went missing. He'd been last seen as he left a party carrying a pack of beer. Five days later his body was spotted in Swift Creek. Four months passed. Then 20-year-old Nathan Kaffer, a student at Vertebrae College, a private Roman Catholic university in La Crosse, Wisconsin, was kicked out of a bar for being intoxicated. Nathan was not happy with this, and the police were called to the scene. He was arrested and taken to the police station, but at just past 2am he was released from police custody. It was to be a month and a half before he was found, dead in the river. His baseball cap, however, had been found long before this, along with his wallet, and the citations the police had given him. They were all neatly arranged on the deck of a shop beside the river's edge. The police believed this was a possible indication he'd committed suicide. Others were not so convinced of this. Then Jeff Giese disappeared. He was found in the river, his body completely drained of blood, as determined not by the first official autopsy, which failed to mention this, but by a private autopsy arranged by the original retired detective Gannon and his partner. It was also evident that he'd been hanging upside down for at least ten hours prior to his death, which had occurred shortly before he was placed in the water, despite being missing for more than 40 days. As for Nathan, two days after he was reported missing, a local resident reported to the police that he'd seen a young man of the same age and appearance as Nathan standing on a bridge in the day, staring down into the water, oblivious to everything. So, of course, the easy answer for Nathan was that he committed suicide. But his girlfriend said he'd spoken of those who took their own lives, saying it was a selfish cop-out. She didn't believe he drowned himself. His father, too, said he wasn't the type to do that, and added, I can't believe these kids just fell in or jumped. Nathan's body was also found in the river more than 40 days after he went missing, like Jeff Giese. Police Lieutenant Dan Marco spoke publicly after that to appeal to local residents not to buy into this idea that young men were being killed and then placed in the water. He was the uncle of one of the boys who had been found dead in the river. He wanted the theory put to bed. Wisconsin University, too, wanted it squashed. 
Betsy Morgan, chair of the psychology department at the university there, along with criminologist Kim Vogt, also spoke out to dispel the belief that a predatory lone wolf serial killer was picking off young men at random. They also said that serial killers prefer up-close killing so that they could enjoy watching it. They did entertain the idea that hypothetically the young men could be drowned in a bathtub after being sedated by a drug and then taken to the river and disposed of, but at the same time they said this was a highly unlikely scenario. On the other hand, criminal psychologist Dr M Goodwin stated the probability that five students just happened to end up in the river is zero. An independent expert on serial homicide with sexual deviancy, Mrs. Pat Brown, also joined in the debate at the time. In fact, she went further than all of them in her involvement. She even engaged in a long conversation with someone who could quite possibly have been the killer of this group of young men. This man handed himself in to the police station in St. Charles, Missouri, telling them that he intended to be the next great and all-time best serial killer. The cops laughed him out of the station. In fact, they even had to get a restraining order against him when he refused to quieten down. Someone else took his threats and promises seriously, however. The private detective hired by Chris Jenkins' family after the police ruled that his drowning death had been an accident, even though he had very little water in his lungs, and a tracker dog indicated that he'd been bundled into a van. The detective had also come across this same man when the man had been resident in Minneapolis at the same time as Chris disappeared. The fantasist, who said he wanted to become the best serial killer in the world, was employed at the time in a funeral parlour, and rather disturbingly, he was a frequent visitor to a website called manunderwater.com, a pornographic website existing for those with a fetish for having intercourse underwater. Pat Brown, the criminologist, tracked this man down on the website forum and entered into a deceptive relationship with a man in an attempt to lure him into a confession, by her posing as a young man who too had a fetish for such practices. Their correspondence became incredibly dark as they role-played together, with the man describing what he would like to do to the young man, who was in fact really the criminologist Miss Brown. This man was a sadist, and what he described was chilling, highly disturbing, and fitted exactly the kind of person who would be capable of drowning young men. He specifically described killing her, posing as a young man, in very graphic detail in the fantasies he wrote to her. From the criminologist's point of view, this man was very capable of carrying out the things he described to her. However, it wasn't taken seriously by the police, according to her. In fact, I think they even denied knowing anything about it. And when he was put in prison for threatening his employer's family, another replica drowning occurred. Only this time it couldn't have been him, because he was incarcerated. There was also the case of Edward Eddie Lampier, a regular employee at a paper mill in Wisconsin who'd been employed there for a quarter of a century. No one who worked with him would have ever expected him to have been arrested for the crimes he committed. He was described as a regular, quiet guy. He wasn't someone who stood out. He lived outside of town in a small ranch with plenty of land. He was a separated father. He was a regular guy. He liked the usual things, hunting, fishing, pool. He would go every few days down to a local bar called Johnny's to play pool. He never drank when he was there, preferring soft drinks. Perhaps now in hindsight, that was a good indication of something lurking inside of him. There was nothing wrong with a man not drinking beer, of course, but it did make sure that he always kept a clear head. It was an ordinary weekday evening in 1991 when a young man managed to escape from his ranch. He ran naked, bleeding, and still partially bound by the chains that had kept him prisoner in the basement of his ranch. He ran for his life to the nearest neighbour's home and pounded on their door. Later, what had actually happened to him would come to light. He'd been at the same bar that weekend. He'd been drinking and feeling very drunk. He'd managed to get himself outside and into his truck before passing out. When he woke, he was no longer in his own truck. 
When he opened his eyes, he realised he was hanging by chains somewhere in the dark. His clothes had been taken off. His captor was the quiet teetotal pool player. He recognised him immediately, having seen him many times in the bar. Then the quiet man that he recognised smashed his head with a metal pole and sexually assaulted him, blindfolding him before he did so. After a couple of days of this, the victim somehow managed to free himself from the shackles, and that was when he seized his chance and ran for his life. The police came to the neighbour's home immediately and went to the ranch to arrest the mill worker. They searched his property, and to their shock, they discovered someone else there, another young man who'd vanished a few days before this. He too was being kept prisoner in the basement. This man's version of what happened to him was a little different. He told the police that he'd been walking home from a firework display when the mill worker pulled over and offered him a ride home. The young man thought nothing of it and accepted the ride. However, as they neared the young man's address, the mill worker suddenly stopped the car, told the young man he was a cop, handcuffed the young man, then knocked him out by hitting him with a large flashlight. Just like the other victim, who'd managed later to flee, this victim too found himself chained up in the basement when he woke up. He too was then beaten and sexually assaulted. The floor of the basement was covered with plastic sheeting. Like a scene from a horror movie, the mill worker had tied a piece of thin rope to the chains that bound him and attached the other end of the rope to a shotgun that was pointed directly at the young man. If the young man moved, the thin rope would tighten and pull the trigger. Well, while this mill worker who'd abducted and tortured these two young men was not considered a suspect in the drowning deaths, it's a perfect example of just how easy it can be to overpower someone and abduct them. Of the Chris Jenkins case, who disappeared on Halloween, Milwaukee magazine said back then at the time, After three months of research into these cases, a gang called the Dealers of Death claim involvement. Alfred, who was the leader of the gang, told the FBI that they'd murdered at least 40 men. Another admitted gang member called himself Zamiley. According to the newspaper, some of the gang were apparently arrested for harbouring runaways and had branded one of them with a five-point star. Alfred, the leader, claimed they were part of a larger group, a political subdivision of another gang. Local detective Gary Sykes believes they were behind street robberies to get money for drugs. As for their claim of murdering all these men, it's possible. He said, they're capable of almost anything. They're just plain weird, and they have no compassion for human life. As for those investigating these water deaths, or rather not investigating them thoroughly, the problem originates largely with the issues that are the crime scene. The assumption is almost always made that the victim is a victim of an accident or suicide, rather than a possible homicide. The crime scene, then, is not considered a crime scene, and the body is quite possibly recovered with less diligence than required and with less emphasis given to assessing the scene and gathering potential evidence before removing the body from water. If the body is removed before preserving the scene, then any evidence that was there will not be found afterwards. When a body is found on land, the body isn't immediately taken away. The body, its positioning, the place in which it's found, is carefully scrutinised for evidence that would explain how and why that person died. When they're in the water, the emphasis is usually to get the body out as quickly as possible and then look at it on the land. Understandably, it's hard to preserve a crime scene in water, especially if it's in flowing water or if it's in the middle of a pond or river, but the evidence is lost by the removal of the body. 
If the victim has no trauma on initial inspection, it's also then likely that the assumption sets in that it's an accidental drowning, especially if the police are already aware of a missing young man who fits the victim's physical description who's disappeared after a night out drinking alcohol. The medical examiners don't routinely test for the presence of drugs which can be administered to the victims, whether by means of spiking their drink or by injection. When they're told by the police that the body was found in the water, they're already under the impression that it was a drowning. Therefore, they don't think of carrying out extensive toxicology tests looking for drugs that would incapacitate and render someone comatose and completely pliant. Because these are not commonly used by murderers, and they don't think these cases are murders. It's Catch-22. Nor do they search the body for minute needle marks, which by the time the bodies are found, will probably be less obvious anyway. So what would it take for the police and for the medical examiners, to look more carefully at these cases, when the assumption is they accidentally fell in and died.